Our Father, we're thankful again tonight for the salvation that we enjoy and can participate in through the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. We ask that you would illuminate our hearts to this area of Christology, that we may grow in our appreciation of what you have done down through history, and we can also grow in appreciation for the object of our faith, which is the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. In whose name we pray, amen. Questions came up after the session last time uh, about the, uh, Dr. Custance's <coughs> uh, hypothesis, the Custance hypothesis about the um, Mary carrying uh, basically immortality in the ovum and that with the virgin birth, making use of that potential immortality uh, as an open door through which uh, Christ could be incarnated. Um, here's Custance's hypothesis. Now, remember, I'm not, not teaching this as the Word of God here. This is the uh, speculations of a Christian physiologist. The reason I do mention them is because these kinds of thoughts, these hypotheses, by men who are actively studying the Word of God and who are active in their professions and their areas of specialty are good to interact with because they act as devices to make us go back to the Word of God and look for the details. I've never participated in any one of these kinds of discussions where I didn't come out of the discussion with an even greater conviction about the literal truth of the Word of God. Um, It forces you to observe things maybe you didn't observe. But basically, here's his hypothesis. His hypothesis is that when you look at growth of a baby from conception, you have the sperm and the ovum, there's a growth period where all the cells can produce any kind of cell. And it's just a period in the, in the growth. And at that point, all the information for eyes, ears, nose, uh, feet, head, uh, are all contained in those cells. And then at a certain point in the development of this fetus, then all of a sudden specialty cells begin to grow and these can no longer reproduce the whole body. They can produce components of the body, but they can't produce the whole body. Yet there are reserved cells that can produce the whole body, the so-called germ cells that Weissman called them a century ago, or almost a century ago, and the somatic cells, and I guess now they call them the stem cells or something, vocabulary changes. But that's the idea. So what Custance is fixed on is if you take um, Eve, Adam calling his wife Isha, which is the Hebrew word for woman, and he renames her from Isha to Hava, to the woman of, uh, of life. That's what Eve means, life. So if she's the mother of all living, and then you couple that with the next statement in Genesis 3 after the fall, when God prophesies that the seed translated from the Hebrew into Greek as the sperm of the woman will defeat the sperm of Satan, the seed. Uh, it's just odd language. And it's, it's not there because it's sloppy. It's there because human vocabulary is struggling with something going on, the way God's designed it. Custance, furthermore, argues that if you look at the sperm and the ova, they have opposite characteristics. The ova is there from birth and never is increased. 
sperm are made through all through a man's life. The ova can be induced to self-replicate. Sperm can't. And so there's a higher, there's more potential there on the female side than on the male side. And Custons argues in his book, as I said, the book's 400 pages long, uh, and I can give it to you if you're interested in the details of how he develops it. But what he's trying to do is speculate creatively on these passages of Scripture and stop this business of reading through the Bible. It's, it takes this as myth or some other thing. More than that, that's just a naive approach to Scripture. So we want to encourage people that try to ask good, solid questions of the text of Scripture. Okay, tonight we're going to go back now to our subject, which is Christology. We're looking at the birth of the king, which is the bringing into history the God-man. Uh, we've looked at the biblical data that the church had to deal with in its first four or five centuries of existence. And out of that came this doctrine called the doctrine of the hypostatic union. That is, the doctrine that Jesus Christ is true humanity coupled with undiminished deity, united without confusion in one person forever. And that doctrine is the center, is the core of, of the whole New Testament revelation. If that goes, everything goes with it. So the doctrine of the hypostatic union is essential that we understand because this year we're working with four things, the birth of Christ, the life of Christ, the death of Christ, and the resurrection of Christ. Well, we're not going to get beyond the life of Christ the rate we're going. And you'll see why. And we've tried to show the approach on Thursday nights that it's not that God's revelation is insufficient or inadequate for man. The problem is, this side of the fall, men essentially reveal their autonomous desire for that tree of the knowledge of good and evil, that external authority other than God, and we want to be free of a God with whom we have ultimate accountability. The agenda is just that simple. In the raw, basic bottom line, that's what's going on. That's why in John 3 it says, and the light came into the world and men love darkness rather than light. And they don't come to the light lest their deeds be reproved. So we're studying how men respond to Christ and in particular how they reject him or how they interact with him. So we've looked at the Old, the Old Testament data leading up to Christ. We said there's three categories of data. One category, we said in page 30, 30 and following, was that there are two streams of revelation in the Old Testament. One stream looks forward to a time when God will dwell with men. So, so this is category one. This is first part of category one, two streams, God with men. That's the Emmanuel theme. That's the uh, Yahweh theme, the God, that I am the one who is with you. So there's that desire through the whole Old Testament that one day God will be reunited with men as he was originally in the Garden of Eden. This is not something new. This is going back to what was old. Then we have that second theme of the fact that there's an ideal human ruler or human king there will be a human king who will lead men, mankind. And we said, when you get into certain passages of the Old Testament, these streams seem to converge. 
They don't actually converge in the Old Testament, but they seem to. Psalm 110. The, uh, the Lord said to my Lord, David speaking. Well, who is the Lord of David? The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand. So something's already happened there because David, when he's writing this, he's the king. Who's over the king? Nobody's over the king. So who's the Lord of David? Who is this mysterious person? There's two people. The Lord talking to my Lord. So there's this sense in which David is ideal king, uh, but uh, David is king, but he's not the ideal king. Somebody's coming after him. And so these two streams seem to converge, but they don't quite converge. Then we said the second category of evidences for the deity of Christ is the fact that Old Testament quotes, Old Testament quotes, using God's name, Yahweh, are replaced in the New Testament with Jesus. So therefore, if you have a direct substitution of Yeshua in passages where in the Old Testament it's Jehovah or Yahweh, what could that other be than a claim tantamount to identifying Jesus Christ with Yahweh? Keep in mind, we're not talking about Greeks and pagans here. We're talking about Jews, monotheists, and monotheists in particular who had a very clear creator-creature idea. So how, writing in a Jewish community, in Hebrew language, talking to people who very well know the creator-creature distinction, and you're substituting Jesus' name for Yahweh's name, what could you, how else can you declare the deity of Christ? Then we said there's a third category of truth, which we summarized last time, and that is where you have uh, God roles, such as creation, saving, forgiving, and then in the New Testament that is replaced with Christ. Christ acts in God's roles. One of the most blatant examples of this is when Jesus Christ turns to people and he says, I forgive you of your sin. Now, come on. That's not a priest. Remember what a priest does. He pronounces that your sins are forgiven. Different language, isn't it? He is commissioned by God to announce forgiveness for sins. But that's not what Jesus did. Jesus didn't use the vocabulary of a priest. Jesus had this audacious statement, I forgive you. You sinned against God, I forgive you. Now, who can forgive a sin against God except God? Or a blasphemer. So, this puts Jesus in a position where either he's ultimately blaspheming or he is clearly God doing his work. Okay, so that gets us through the biblical data. And on page 34, you have that table I've constructed for you which shows you where those substitutions are so you can see them. And then we go on to page 35. And on page 35, if you'll open your Bibles to Titus 2.13... We wound up last time by citing five passages in the New Testament that speak of the full deity of Jesus Christ. Of course, we have John. Um, we have John 1.1. 1, 1. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. And the Word was God. And that declares the Word, the Logos, to be God. And I understand that Jehovah's Witnesses have a... Have a an attempt to end-run that verse. We'll get to that when we get to Arianism. Um, but 
there's, there's these, these verses, and you need to know these. John 1.1 1, 1 is a critical text. Titus 2.13 is a critical text. Let's read it. Follow me with, uh, in your translations. Looking for the blessed hope and appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus. The rule in the Greek is called the Granville Sharp Rule. The Granville Sharp Rule says, when you have a person, now, person, when you have a person, connect, and, and you have two nouns referring to a person connected by chi, which is and, and you have an adjective in front of that expression, the great God and Savior Jesus Christ, that puts them together, speaking the same person. So what this is, an article plus an adjective plus a noun plus chi plus a noun, that that refers to the one person. It's a construction. So, Titus 2.13 is a very strong text to prove the full and complete deity of Jesus Christ and that it was recognized and written about by Paul very early in church history. It's not something that happened later on when people just kind of deified this human carpenter. Then the other one is 1 John 5.20. So these are the three most powerful ones. 1 John 5.20. So it's John 1.1, Titus 2.13, and um, 1 John 5.20. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding in order that we might know Him who is true and we are in Him who is true, in His Son, Jesus Christ. This is the true God and eternal life. Now notice, you could say, well, isn't that a divine being? Well, what's the next verse say? In a passage that's telling you to avoid idols, you don't promiscuously talk about calling something God unless the object that you're calling God is God. So 1 John 5.20 is a third very powerful reference. Now there are two less, there are two other verses in the New Testament that are powerful, but it involves all kinds, you have to, kind of be careful of the text and the context as ways of messing with it. Uh, turn to Hebrews chapter 1. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 8. Now this is a citation out of the Old Testament. It says, of the Son, he says, thy throne, O God, is forever and ever, and the righteous scepter is a scepter of his kingdom. Now, if that's addressed to and about the Son, it's clearly calling the Son God. Thy throne, O God, it's addressed to God. But the text that introduces the Old Testament quote by the author of Hebrews says, but of the Son, he says. Concerning the Son, he says, thy throne, O God, is forever and ever. Why this verse isn't as powerful as the others is because somebody can come say that that's just talking about the throne of the human king. That it's God's throne, but it's the human king of the throne. 
And to deal with that, then you have to get it back into the monarchy and, and so forth. This is a kind of more, more argument involved in that one. John, Romans 9.5 is in the fifth one. I'm going to take you to all five of these verses. Now, keep in mind all the previous material we've covered. So, it's not that these five verses are the only places. I'm just referring to these five verses because they're the most explicit. Romans 9.5. Now, what do you do with a verse like this? Who are the fathers? From whom is the Christ, according to the flesh, who is over all God-blessed forever? Now, the problem with five, like with Hebrews, it's the punctuation of the sentence. Because you could say that God blessed forever is an, a kind of an ejaculative thank you. God bless forever. Or you could read it as the God bless forever is synonymous with the rest of the clause. And that's why those two are times. So here it is again. John 1.1, 1, 1, Hebrews 1.8, 1 John 5.20, Romans 9.5, and Titus 2.13. 2, 2, Okay, now here's what we want to do. We're going to embark tonight on some very deep stuff. This is going to challenge our ability to think because it gets right into the center of the Godhead. And we're going to go through this and take many weeks to do it. Um, Be patient. There is a blessing in this because maybe it will sharpen your appreciation of the God whom you worship. Because we're going to take uh, a tour of some 400 years of church history and show you the blind alleys that godly people tried in their thinking about Jesus Christ. Some of them not so godly people. But the church struggled and struggled and struggled. And what I get so tired of hearing when you get in a debate or discussion is this weak need response that goes like this. Well, the New Testament in its purity back then, they didn't deify Jesus. That's just the church speculation over the centuries. You know, myth gets encrusted upon the truth. So we've got to have truth mixed together with myth, and we've got to pull off all the myth. When you pull off all the myth, you wind up with this little lowly Jewish carpenter. Like the church was so stupid. You know, these guys are so brilliant now. I mean, the PhDs today really know a lot more. They don't know more about Jesus. I mean, Jesus didn't have a PhD. How did he make it? Paul didn't have one. Probably had the equivalent of one. Matthew didn't. I mean, geez. Twelve apostles? And none of them got PhDs? How did God ever start the church? Well, that's why he started it. That's how he could start it. Didn't have them around. Messed things up. So... What we're talking about here is that when we go agonizingly through this convoluted hallway and look at all the doors, just visualize yourself walking down a hallway and you open one door and open another one, it's a new house, and you want to see what's in the rooms. That's what we're going to do. When we get done, I hope to convince you that the only model that we can have in our minds of God is the Trinity. The church was forced into the doctrine of the Trinity by trying to resolve the data about the Lord Jesus Christ. 
It's not the other way around. The cultists will come to your door. They will send you literature. You'll get this in the college classroom that somewhere the church got this out of the Greek milieu. Well, if there's any place it didn't get it was from the Greek worldview because the Greek worldview was pagan. The Greeks didn't have a concept of the creator-creature distinction. Come on. Everybody knows that. What's this business about you getting the Trinity out of the Greek culture? The Trinity was reluctantly, reluctantly created by the church to deal, the doctrine of it, that is, to deal with this problem that we're working with. They, had, they came to it because they were forced to come to it. They tried every other answer. And all the other answers don't fit what we hear about when the light came into the world. It doesn't picture this pas- these passages. So on page 35, we're embarking on this, the formulation of the doctrine. And it would be a good exercise for some of you who have never been involved with church history. Because what it will do for you will get you out of this arrogant spirit that we sometimes get ourselves into as evangelicals, that the Holy Spirit only taught our particular generation. Everybody was stupid until we came along. And we are just God's gift to the church. Nobody had it straight before we walked around. And after we're gone, nobody will get it straight. Now, when we learn about church history, we realize that there were other people that the Holy Spirit did teach, believe it or not. And those people did a lot of very fine work. And this doctrine of Jesus Christ was one of the finest pieces of work the church has ever done. And it was all done before we had Sunday schools, church growth movements, TV. And how did they ever get it done? Let's think about that. Let's look at that bottom paragraph on page 35 because I'm going to have to rely on the notes very much now. Because We're going to get to the passages, but I want you to follow with the notes because this is about history. And I've had to compile hundreds of pages of history writings into these paragraphs for you. The church took nearly 600 years to summarize all the scriptural data about Christ into a consistent doctrinal statement. The story of that struggle will now be briefly surveyed. To attain these conclusions, this is my key sentence, to attain these conclusions, the early Christians discarded one false concept of God after another in their search to explain all the New Testament revelation in a logically consistent manner key sentence. The church tried many different ideas about God and it wouldn't work. The stuff the cultists bring to your front door is garbage. It's stuff that has been tried 150 times before and every time people try it, it doesn't work. You'd think Satan gets get tired of doing this. It's the same garbage. To argue, as liberals and cultists do, that the Trinity was imported from Greek philosophy by the early church is quite contrary to historical fact. On the contrary, the Trinity was an original concept coming from within the church only after the imported concepts of God from outside the culture had failed from outside, should be from outside culture, had failed to correlate with New Testament revelation. Now, page 36, here's the first struggle point. 
Here's the first problem, the first big argument that the church had, the first plank in the platform of the hypostatic union doctrine. And here's the deal. Is Christ a divine person distinct from the Father or not? So the first point is, here's the Father, here's the Son. What is, are they the same person? Are these two masks worn by the same God? Or can we explain the divergence between them as one is God and one is less than God? So the first thing here was struggling with this problem. How to differentiate the Father from the Son. When we all go through this, this is not theory, people. Think about when you pray. Do I pray to the Father or do I pray to the Son? Most prayers in the Bible, by the way, are to the Father. The only prayers you ever see in the Bible to the Son is when the Son is physically showing himself to people. All the other prayers in the Bible are to the Father. Why is that? Well, we want to look at this. The first erroneous attempt to describe Christ's doctrine was known as monarchianism. Now, if you turn the page and look at the chart, page 37, those are the heresies. We're going to go through them one by one. Look at the first two. First two rows on that chart. Both of them involve what is called monarchianism. Let me define that word for you. Monarchianism. See the stem in that word? Monarch. Now, what monarchianism is, is a monarch model of God. That is, people are thinking in their head, when they think of God, of a solitary king over all. Solitary. The key word in monarchianism is solitary. See, the Trinity isn't solitary. Um... Here, here's what, let's, let's think about Scripture for a minute here. Um, before God created the world, what does Jesus say that the Father did for him? He what me before the foundation of the world? He loved me before the foundation of the world. So before creation, was there a personal relationship between the Father and the Son? Yes, there was. Now, if God can have a personal relationship within himself, how does that make him independent and self-contained versus coming over here and seeing God as a solitary being? What is absence from his existence before creation if he's a solitary person? Another person, right? So if I'm Islamic or I am a late Judaism, and I have a solitary God, is the solitary God personally complete before creation? Ah. Interesting. And it's interesting that Islam's divine attribute of love is missing. Allah has many attributes. Love is not one of them. Now, do you see why? What's the object of his love? If you make his love dependent upon creation, what have you done to the creator? You've made him dependent on the creation, haven't you? 
Now you see, the Trinity is not so stupid. It's precisely the Trinitarian nature of God that permits his social life, his personal life to exist independent of his creation. Very important point. If you screw this up, you're going to make God dependent on his own creation. Or you're going to make God a non-person. In his essence, he is not personal at all. He's just a force. Got to do one or the other. But it's precisely this multiplicity of persons in God that keeps him totally self-contained, self-sufficient, such that he never had to create the universe if he didn't want to. But if you don't have multiplicity within God, he has to create the universe to have somebody around. God doesn't need us. He doesn't need his angels. So it's very important that we understand God is self-contained, independent, and he doesn't have to do anything outside of himself. Perfectly content with himself. Doesn't need any object for his love because he already has objects for his love within himself. And Jesus says that the Father loved him before the foundation of the world. They talked one to another. The Trinity communed one to another. They don't need us. So, the Trinitarian nature is very important. Well, this model of monarchianism says solitary person. Solitary person is the doctrine here. This was the presupposition of these two arguments. Now, I hope another thing we learn these Thursday nights is this is going to show what presuppositional thinking is all about and how important it is to examine the presuppositions that control. These poor people didn't even realize that they were presupposing this. That's what's so nasty about presupposition. Catch them like viruses, and you don't even know they're there. And you, want, you catch yourself, why do I keep thinking this way? Well, you've got to get dig down, and all of a sudden you see, oh, that's why I'm thinking this way. Deep down in my inner program, I've, I've got this wrong set of rules. And so these guys, when they worked on this doctrine, they realized after a while the church came to this awareness. And we, we got some, something's wrong here. We keep going into the wrong room as we walk down this hallway. So the, the room now has, we'll call it monarchianism. Okay? That's the presupposition that had to be exposed for what it was. And it took a long time and a lot of arguments and a lot of dissatisfaction. Before a Christian started to deal with the text, they said, I can't worship Jesus Christ this way. There's something wrong with this. The Spirit just didn't bear witness that this is true. <clears throat> so let's, on page 36, go through what happened. The, four, the, next, the second paragraph. One version of monarchianism, known as modal monarchianism, held that all three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, were not really separate persons, but only appearances or masks that the solitary God put on himself to meet man. So when God wants to meet man in a certain role, he puts on the Father image. When he wants to meet man in another role, he puts on the Son image. When he wants to meet man and do something else, he puts on the spirit image. It's the same person appearing under three masks. Anybody see a problem with that immediately? If these are masks that God puts on, will the real, well, who's the real God? See? These are masks. They're not the real revelation of who he is. So now you start to make God unknowable. 
The father and son were not really separate persons, but appearances or mass that the solitary God put on himself to meet man. Sibelius, for example. This is another word for modal monarchianism. Those are bugs like church history. Sibelianism. Sibelius, for example, taught that he himself is the father, he himself is the son, he himself is the spirit. As I say, there are three names in one object. God, therefore, has three labels, none of which, not a neon, none of which express what God was really like. Man saw him in one situation as the father, in another situation as the son, and so forth. But man never saw him as he really is. Modal monarchianism tried to maintain the truth of monotheism. See, you know, it was good that way. It tried to protect monotheism. But it used a defective monotheistic model and thus failed to fit the obvious New Testament data that speak of the Father and Son as two distinct persons. As one instance, consider Jesus praying in the Garden of Gethsemane. Who was he praying to? Was he talking to himself in a sort of make-believe monologue put on for the benefit of his disciples, who, by the way, were sleeping while he was praying? Modal monarchianism can't escape this conclusion, whether it's in its ancient form or the modern form, modern back in the 70s when I originally wrote this, like the local church movement of Witness Lee. I don't even know whether that's around anymore, but that was going for a while. This guy's related to Watchman Nee and uh, somehow incurred a lot of his followers. And, And he held to modal monarchianism. It was the same old stuff. New Testament data about these two distinct persons had to be taken seriously. So, modal monarchianism, which was the first attempt at this thing, that one failed. The modal view. It quickly got refuted by the fact that the New Testament data clearly shows the Lord Jesus talking to the Father and the Father talking to the Son. Next one. When a second version of monarchianism arose, it became known as dynamic monarchianism. Same model. See, deep underneath, don't lose the forest and the trees. Deep down, these guys hold the same idea. God is a solitary person. And if he's a solitary person, he can't be the Father and the Son. But what dynamic monarchianism did is it made the Father God, and that made Christ what? If the Father's God and they're two distinct people, this guy can't be God. So they began to attack and undercut the deity of Christ. Watch how they did it. The new version took the New Testament distinction between the Father and the Son seriously, but it failed to correct the same faulty monotheism of modal monarchianism, and thus incorrectly described Christ. Since God was one in person, the dynamic monarchians reasoned both the Father and the Son could not be the one person. They made... um, the Father, the real God, leaving the Son as a mere human vessel of an impersonal divine power. The dynamic monarchian Theodotus taught that Jesus, born of a virgin, watch this now, here's what they did. They accepted the virgin birth, was born of a virgin, was a true man, into whom at his baptism a divine power called Christ entered. See what they did? They took the baptism of Christ And they made that the point at which this infusion of divine power came upon him. But he was basically no more than a man. Although this version of monarchianism better explained the New Testament data concerning the father-son distinction, it left unexplained other New Testament data affirming Christ's deity, his role in salvation, his authority to reveal directly God's word. 
Interestingly, the second version of monarchianism corresponds to modern liberal ideas. Carl Adam, I quote the Roman Catholic theologian here, because at this point, Protestants and Catholics are agreed. This is one area where Rome and Geneva have both got together. We both defend the hypostatic union of Jesus Christ. And, and Carl Adam says, modern liberal assessments of Jesus as the great, unique, but purely human means of divine revelation are remarkably close to this heretical dynamism. Remember what did we read three, two nights ago, two weeks ago? Harry Emerson Fosdick. What did he call Jesus? Remember? The Master. Any dynamic monarchian could have called him the Master. What you want to see is there are not many ideas in the world they keep repeating the same old garbage. It just revisits, recycled garbage. So all you have to do is the first cycle. Don't go through eight cycles of it. Go through one. Get it all over with. These two monarchian erroneous attempts to describe Christ failed, watch this, because of their common starting assumption of a personal, solitary, monotheistic God. That was their problem. That was why they had problems trying to explain the New Testament data. Couldn't get it together because they had a wrong presupposition about the very nature of God himself. Okay, now we're going to move on to the third one. This is the most famous of all. This one, Arianism. Look at the chart on page 37. Today, Jehovah's Witnesses are just another example of Arianism. It's about the sixth recycle of this heresy. So, Arianism started out with something else. Notice what they did. Look on the right column. What they held was God, they had borrowed this. Here's where the Greeks came in. You want to say somebody imported something into the church. Well, here's an import. The Greeks held to the ideal world. Plato. Illustration of what they're talking about. Try to draw a perfect triangle. You know, in plane geometry, you get your compass and you work the steel out and get all the deal. That's rules of how to create a, a, a triangle on a piece of paper. Can you ever create a perfect triangle on a piece of paper? No. Because you've got the graphite from your pencil. It doesn't always go in a straight line. Paper's crooked. If you look at it, you know, the finest drawing of a triangle, look at it in a magnifying glass, it looks horrible. You try to sketch a triangle and it looks horrible. So can you ever create a triangle? But we all know what a triangle is, don't we? We all know when it's not a triangle, but try to make a real triangle in this world. Try to cut wood that it fits. It makes a real triangle. You just can't ever do it. So here's what the Greeks said. A real triangle doesn't exist in the physical world. It only exists in the unseen mental world. That was the world of the ideal. So because they wanted to create this ideal, they had to have the ideal because they realized if you don't have an ideal, what goes, where, where do your categories go? Where does your logic go? You've got to have an absolute. So they conceived of an absolute as a principle, like the ideal triangle, like the ideal circle. There was this realm of ideal ideas. And that was what the Greeks fastened on, because they, they truly recognized them. You don't have something like that, you're in trouble real fast. See, this is what happens in our society today. We don't have any concept of what right and wrong is. And Plato would have agreed. We disagree with Plato, and I'll show you in a minute. But he would have agreed with us. You cannot have a society of unified nature without an ideal over it 
to which everybody's committed. Otherwise, you just have fractious powers, sects moving against each other, political parties struggling with one another. But you don't have any common ground. So they were right in seeing a need for this thing. The problem they saw was that in this world, you don't ever have an ideal and you can't get there. So they separated the ideal from this world. Now, in the right column under Arianism there, the pure ideal... Now, here's, where they, here's what happened. Here's the import happening. See if you catch it. They took the Greek, this Greek bifurcation between the ideal and this world, and it looked so great. I mean, it seemed to explain things so nicely. And they said, gee, you know, this is a great tool for studying the Bible. So they started doing this. They moved it over here, and they said, now we're going to relabel it. So they put a Christian vocabulary on it. They said, let's do away with this and call this God. Now, what happens when you do something like that? Let's think about that a minute. This is a fatal error. What's the content of G-O-D now? It's this pre-understanding of the Greeks, isn't it? In other words, all they have done is relabel their own thought pattern by attaching G-O-D to it. What has happened now to the content of the meaning of the word God? It's no longer biblical, is it? You can talk God, but the content of the object of the word God now is this ideal world that you've gotten from Greek philosophy. It's not the biblical God. So they misidentified God, and once they did that, they were in trouble again. Because where did Jesus walk and talk? In this world or the ideal world? This world, didn't he? Uh-oh. Now, if I'm a Greek and I don't believe that you can ever get the ideal in this world, what happens to the nature of the Lord Jesus Christ? Can he be God? He can't be God. He, ha- he could be close to God. You know, there are better triangles and then there's crude triangles. And he was, he was a pretty good triangle. But he wasn't the ideal triangle because the ideal triangle doesn't exist in this world. So see what happened? Here we go. We thought we had this nice, cool idea and it seemed to solve everything. We import it into our theology, baptize it with a Christian vocabulary, and then, like a landmine, we walk on it and it blows up and blows our legs off. The church has done this again and again. You can't be too picky about importing this crud in. That's why Paul said, beware of what in Colossians 2a? Beware of philosophy and vain deceit. Paul knew this. He had studied under the top people of his day. Paul knew Aristotle. I mean, Paul probably read it when he was 11. Didn't have TV. Had something else to do. So he could read Plato and Aristotle when he was a kid. Okay, so he is, he's, he's clued into this kind of thing. Now we come on the bottom of 37 to Arianism. The question now... Whereas before, it was number one, is the father distinct from the son? Now we come to the second issue. We know the father is distinct from the son. We solved that, point number one. But what we want to do now is, how and in what way is the son subordinate to the father? Clearly, Jesus obeys the father, right? New Testament says, everything the father does, I do. So, now that we've distinguished the two, how are we going to handle this subordination without making the subordination inferiority? By the way, watch carefully what's happening here. 
Because when we get done with this, you're going to say, oh, this is all heavy theory. I'm going to show you something. Modern feminism is dealing with this problem. How can a, the, the, the biblical role of woman that's supposed to be subordinate, etc., etc., in the Scripture, is taken to be as an affront because it makes women less than men, in essence. Well, if that argument holds, let's move that argument over to the, tr- over to the father and son and see what happens now. If subordination of the son to the father means subordination of essence, like they're saying, then Jesus can't be fully God. So the Trinity, they can't work the Trinity. And I was, I was reminded of this back many, many years ago when feminism first came out. I wanted to read what a Christian feminist had to say. And I forgot what the lady was. Very famous lady, uh, evangelical woman who had written this book. And I, I quickly went to it and I looked at the index because I wanted to see where is this lady going to deal with the Trinity. I want to see because I know what, she's going to have a problem. And I want to see how she handles it. So sure enough, I flip through the book, I check the index out, and she's got a reference to the Trinity. And would you believe, you get to the passage where she, and she's having a problem with the doctrine of the Trinity. Of course she is. Because she's got the, in, the concept of subordination to be one always of essence. And she was trying to say, she said, I'm really struggling with this doctrine. I mean, oh, we've got to rethink this one. No, yes, yeah, sure, lady. It's only the hub of the Christian faith. Go ahead, rethink it. Why don't you shake up the foundations too? But you see, it's all interconnected. So this is not theory. Now let's look at some of these passages. Matthew 19:17. Because ultimately, the doctrine has to be fit the text. You come up with all kinds of doctrine, but does it fit what God has told us in His Word? when he talks about the Father, and Kurios, or Lord, when he talks about the Son. Why does he use different titles? Why do he use God for both? Now, we just showed you some passages, Titus 2.13, one of them, where he does that. But generally, he doesn't. Those, that pattern argues for some sort of subordination of the Son to the Father. Other New Testament data discussed earlier in this chapter demand full deity of the Son. Remember, we dual streams of revelation. Okay. Turn the page. I want to look at this Arianism because this was a very, very serious, serious heresy in church history. The Arian heresy, the most popular answer to the dilemma, dominated the church for a limited period. It actually was the majority view, by the way. The Arians won the day in America. If you'd taken a vote, Arians would have won. Arians taught that Christ's subordination to the Father was a subordination of essence. Christ was made of like substance as the Father, but not the same substance. Notice these two Greek words. What do you notice in those two Greek words that's different? Anybody see? Look carefully, those two Greek words. They look almost alike except for one letter. That little letter, I. 
You know what in the Greek that's called? That's called iota. Ever hear the expression, it doesn't matter one iota? You know where that came from? Arian controversy. And now you see these things that have slipped into our language. What did we say about a few weeks ago? We talked about the dark ages. We all use the term dark ages. Who invented that term? The liberals. That was the Enlightenment people. The Enlightenment people, see. There's no light on the Middle Ages. They only preach the gospel, that's all. Dark ages. Then we have the Enlightenment. When we go back to Aristotle and all the pagans, we call that Enlightenment. That's an advance. And we've learned this in our history courses. Now, here's another jewel. doesn't matter one iota. You know who started that? was Gibbon. Decline and fall of the Roman Empire. And he had some little snotty footnote in this history book. And he says, ha, 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 the Christian's fighting about one iota. So, that expression, it doesn't matter one iota, is absolutely wrong. A lot doesn't matter in one iota, and we're going to see what one iota makes a big difference here. It's whether Jesus is God or not. So, let's look. Follow the discussion here. The Arians, however, like the Monarchians, had imported an outside, unbiblical idea of God into the discussion. They relied upon Platonism in which God was the name for pure essence above and separate from the world. In Platonic tradition, this one God could communicate with the world only through some intermediary being, a half-God, half-man, called the Logos. Unfortunately, the very word First John, yeah, John 1 used to describe Christ. When Arians borrowed this Platonic concept of God, please underline that, Notice who's doing the borrowing, who's doing the importing. It's not the Orthodox Christians that are doing it. It's the heresies that are doing it. It's precisely opposite what you learn in history class. It's the heretics that are importing this stuff into the church. So they imported the Platonic concept of God. They used the intermediary being idea to solve the subordination dilemma, making Jesus Christ a semi-God, semi-man. By ignoring New Testament data supporting Christ's full deity and therefore his role in revelation and salvation, Arians were led... Now watch this. Remember I said, when you import a Trojan horse at night, what comes out of the horse? Trojans. And watch what happens. We imported the stuff. The Arians imported... Now watch the payback. Here come the Trojans out of the horse now, see? They so separated God the Father in the ideal world from God the Son. And by the way, think of how close this comes in our thought patterns. Haven't you had this thought many times in your Christian life? Well, you know, God really isn't here. He he doesn't walk around the crud I walk around in. It's very nice to have these promises. But boy, He isn't here to see this mess. Ah. See? See how easy it is to slip into this stuff? They so separated God the Father in the ideal world from God the Son who spoke in this world that neither the Son nor mankind who listened to Him could really know God. Now that quote, we'll drop down to the quote. Now, I'm quoting the guy. This is the God. This is Arius. Now listen to Arius. God Himself then in His own nature is ineffable, unknowable by men, by all men. Equal or like Himself, He alone has none or one in glory. The unbegun, now look at this, the unbegun, that means he's the eternal one, made the Son a beginning of things, originated, and advanced Him as a Son to Himself by adoption. What does that sound like? 
God the Father created the Son, doesn't it? He has nothing proper to God in substance. Look at that one. That's talking now about the Son. The Son has nothing proper to God in substance, for He is not equal, no, nor one in essence with Him. God is inevitable, unknowable to His Son. To His Son. See what, where they were driven? For He is to Himself what He is, that is, unspeakable, so that nothing which is called comprehensible does the Son know to speak about. For it is impossible for Him, the Son, to investigate the Father who is by Himself. For the Son does not know His own essence. For, being a Son, He really existed at the will of the Father. That's a whole so much language to carry through this, this stuff. I mean, this is hard stuff. You have to read this over 20 times before it clicks. That's okay. Uh, I've read it over a lot of times. Um, but let, we're going to wind this up here by, by finishing up this Arianism. Follow with me now in the next paragraph. Denial of Christ's full deity had to lead the Arians into a morass in which God is unknowable, in which revelation about Him is only historically relative, and in which salvation is impossible from the Son. The anti-Arians. Now watch what happens. Now, he, these are the guys that were the minority crowd. They had to get up and they had to argue their way out of the box. And I mean, there was some stuff because remember, the Arians won. They won the vote. So the Orthodox guys were on the... They were the small party here. But here's what they did to win the day. Watch their argument. This finally won the church. The Spirit, Holy Spirit bore witness that this was scriptural reasoning. The anti-Arians, who insisted on the sharp creator-creature distinction without any such intermediary being, asked why Jesus Christ was being worshipped if He wasn't full deity. Who said to them that having abandoned the worship of the created universe, they should proceed again to worship something created and made? Do you see the argument? Now, what have we gone? We, we go around and around, you know, over the years. We, I've shown this thing 150 times. You see why I do this? What does it all boil down to? The creator-creature distinction. You've got to have that distinction. And you see, this is where the anti-Aryans hung them up. They said, okay, guys, you want to be so smart. You want to make Jesus Christ less than God on the creator-creature distinction. That makes... Jesus on this side, not that side. Now we accuse you of blasphemy. Because you're saying that I am supposed to worship Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ can't be the creator, therefore he must be a creature. If he's a creature, I'm worshiping a creature. Now how do you defeat that logic? What is that logic coming up in tension against? You see what it, you feel the tension coming up? It's something's wrong here. And what is wrong is that substrata, that presupposition that was come in, that ideal. They mislabeled the ideal and called it God. didn't even inform themselves from the Scriptures. They informed themselves from Plato and Aristotle. So, here's the argument on top of page 39. They kept on pressing the point. They further argued that if the semi-divine Logos Christ were not fully God, He had to be mutable. What's mutable mean? He was changing. Right? He was like, well, we all are. We're in a world of flux. He changes. And, and, and so here's one of their arguments. How can he who beholds the mutable, the changing, think 
that he's beholding the immutable or the unchanging. In other words, how do you see God's face looking at Jesus? If Jesus is a creature and he's subject to this world and he's changing all the time, and I go to worship him, I can't be worshiping God then, can I? I'm looking at the wrong object. Because you've turned Christ into a creature. Now you're making me worship a creature and telling me I can see God's face in the creature. Impossible. Then they had a third argument. The anti-Aryans, led by Athanasius, there's the hero. He was the guy that stood up and took the heat. Athanasius got up. He was a deacon in Alexandria. And he, his famous saying was, if Jesus, here's another key sentence, if Jesus be not God, then Christians are not saved. Why? What's eternal life? To know Him. If Jesus isn't God, we don't know God. We don't have eternal life then. You see, that's the same thing Joel's witness. Don't have a problem with that. The dogmatic result of the Arian disputes could be summarized that Christ is not a God of secondary order. He is God Himself. This was the basis of the formulation, God-man. What Christ does, thinks, utters, works, has absolute validity. Now, the next quote I have, quote number 24, comes out of the same thing I showed you the hymn book. Remember? We went to the Apostles' Creed a couple of Thursdays ago, and we read the Apostles' Creed, I believe in God the Father, Almighty, Maker of heaven and earth, so on, and we had Jesus Christ, and then it went out of the Holy Spirit, so on and so on. And then I, what, did we do, what did we turn to? We turned to the Second Creed. What was the Second Creed? The Nicene Creed. And what in the Nicene Creed did we notice? Here's the original version of the Nicene Creed, not the, that one that we have in the hymn books is somewhat edited. So look at the original version of the Nicene Creed. Now, keep in mind, Athanasius going at it with Arius, and they're fighting, and they're arguing, and they're voting in church councils, and they're maneuvering for positions, and they got their spin, doctors out, and they're going through all this argument. And finally the church says, you know, the spirit within us testifies that Athanasius must be right. If Jesus is not God, we know not God, we are not saved. So therefore, they said, we've got to go back to the Apostles' Creed and fix it up so this doesn't happen again. We've had too much church discord over this point. So, to get the unity of the faith, they went back and they modified the creed. And they said, we're going to rework this thing. And now here's what they... Now, having gone through this, we read that a few nights ago before we went through this history. Now, now read this nice ingredient and see if it doesn't make sense to you. We believe in God the Father Almighty, Creator of all things, visible and invisible. Why they put that in there? Because the intermediary beings, the invisible angels... But God is the creator of all things. Well, what's that first sentence of the Nicene Creed doing to the creator-creature distinction? Strengthening it, isn't it? We believe God, the Father, creator of all things, visible and invisible. That wasn't in the Apostles' Creed. See, there was a hole in there. The Arians could say, oh yeah, I believe in God the Father. They recited the Apostles' Creed. The Creed didn't filter them out. So the church made the mesh on the filter a little finer. Now we're going to strain out the Arians. Creator of all things visible and invisible, and in one Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, only begotten of the Father, now look, that is of the substance of the Father, God of God, begotten, not made, being of the same substance with the Father. You see why all that vocabulary is packed into that creed? We don't even recite the creed anymore in our churches. 
What sad day. In this creed, the church used every vocabulary word it could find to deny the Arian heresy that Jesus' subordination of the Father was one of essence. Jesus, the Son, was same essence, homoousian, as the Father. He was not merely of like essence, homoousian. The iota did make a difference. So, we're going to conclude because we run out of time tonight, but I hope this gives you a flavor for the fact of how to appreciate the fact that a lot of godly men and women had to pray this thing through, had to argue this thing through, had to go back to Scripture and think this thing through until we could get it straight. Without Christ's doctrine pure, we cannot preach a pure gospel. The whole issue of salvation is contingent upon Christ being who He is. Father, we thank You for this time tonight. We thank You for the godly men and women who preceded us in church history, taught by the Spirit, who created these wonderful creeds that were battle-hardened, battle-scarred people who went through the ringer in order to declare and stand up for the truth that we can stand on their shoulders and learn more of what the Holy Spirit teaches. But always let us remember the appreciation for the fact that they obeyed You. They followed Scripture. They went back and they were willing to totally rethink their whole position on the basis of your authoritative word. May they be a wonderful inspiration to us living in this end of the 20th century. In Christ's name, Amen. Okay. Um, <coughs> we'll open the floor up here for some Q&A. There has been a request for some prayer, which I think we ought to at least um, have before as we conclude our Q&A tonight about the fact that uh, right now our, some of our government leaders are in a position where they really have to think through what they're doing. And um, we need to, they need our prayers, because 1 Timothy 2 says to pray for those in authority. And uh, we want to do that. But um, before we close up, uh, are there any particular questions. There should be some questions out of tonight because we covered an awful lot of stuff tonight. Had a lot of ramifications. And it's difficult material and it is deep because it's God that we're talking about here. Um, it shouldn't be strange that it's, it's deep and difficult. Thank you, Debbie. <laughs> Monarchy. Okay, the hypostatic union doctrine can be summarized in a set of phrases. And each one of these phrases deal with one of these errors. And that's why I'm going to go through all these errors so you can see that it wasn't just somebody creating flower language. Um, you know, in many ways, the guys that did the creeds were the precursors of lawyers. And they're the theological equivalent of lawyers. They, they wrote this to try to be as tight as they possibly could. And they, they can't, you can never write a perfect creed because somebody can always, you know, read, read what I call rubberize it, like we've done the Constitution. Um, I sometimes wish a Christian bookstore would have the first liberal edition of the Scriptures and made a rubber and you could stretch it any way you wanted. Um, the, the doctrine of hypostatic union is that Jesus Christ is undiminished deity. First, please. See, because what they were doing, the Arians, they were trying to diminish the deity. Undiminished deity. 
and true humanity. The next heresy we're going to come next week is docetism. Docetism held that Jesus' humanity was a phantom. It was just a phantom thing. It was an appearance. He wasn't really there physically. Uh, they, they elevated him so much that they, didn't, they lost the humanity. Now we don't have any atonement. Um, so he is undiminished deity. He is true humanity. Then there's another heresy coming up where his deity and his humanity got mixed together. And now you have this half-breed, greater creature kind of thing. Um, so it is undiminished deity and true humanity united in one person without confusion. And that without confusion is to, to knock off another heresy that came up where they were mixing them two together. The undiminished deity and true humanity united in one person without mixture. Now, how you get these two? It's right. It's hard. You can't. I mean, you can't logically synthesize all this to your own satisfaction. But you have to have all these elements because if you don't have the elements, then you go drifting off into the wild blue. So you have to have undiminished deity, true humanity, united in one person, without mixture, forever. So it's not a temporary thing during the period of the incarnation on earth. And then he somehow he loses his humanity when he res- rises from the dead and he ascends into heaven. He has his human body today. Bones, fingernails. Um, so it is united forever. So every one of those phrases is a hard, fought-for phrase and is very, very important to have. And I hope that as we go through this, another thing, if you haven't ever been exposed to this uh, personally, that this will help you realize that theology is like a sweater. And you start untangling something. It quickly unravels in, in strange places. Uh, you never think, for example, that docetism, by denying the full humanity of Christ, all of a sudden does away with the cross. And then the whole doctrine of salvation goes out the window. You see, you're, you're dealing here with a fundamental thing, and you tamper with the foundation, and the whole building just rocks. So that's why it was good that the church spent 400 to 500 years getting it straight. Thankfully, we haven't had to rethink this. The only, if you look at that chart that I drew... Um, the liberals are trying to redo it because all they're doing is they're revisiting dynamic monarchianism all over again. That's all it is. Same thing. And they've got the same problem. An unknowable God. That's why they give book reviews on Sunday morning instead of the Bible because they haven't got anything else to do. I mean, you can't talk about God. Don't know Him. All we know is the Bible isn't right. We know that for sure. Um, okay, any, anything else? Wade? As a almost deification, it seems uh, from an outsider. Um, and how do they how do they actually implement this heresy? All the story of Islam. I'm not intimately familiar with it. all the details away myself. But um, true Muslims um, don't deify Muhammad. They they make keep him human. Um, they. 
there's all kinds of problems in the origin of Islam. One story that I I want to check out if I before I get into the sixth part of the series <clears throat> is the strange fact that Allah, the name Allah, is apparently associated with a lunar deity in the time of Muhammad. What makes and, and the theory is that what you have here is a monotheistic warping of an original pagan god. And a strange convolution. Mohammed was, knew a lot of Jews and he knew Christians. And he, he wasn't out in the desert eating sand. This guy knew a lot of stuff. I mean, he, he had intercourse with people who really knew. Um, <coughs> he was exposed to a lot. So, when you have Allah apparently a lunar deity by derivation, it is interesting that what is the emblem of Islam? The crescent. Think about it. They don't have a red cross. What is their aid agency? The red crescent. See, and you look on Islamic countries' flags, and what do you see? The crescent. So it's interesting. The reason why I mention this is simply because uh, when I was in Dallas in, in December, I was talking to Dave Hunt. And, um, of course, Dave Hunt is, you know, you've written, probably heard of his books and so on, very uh, anti-Roman Catholic. Um, but Dave was talking to me and he said, you know, it's kind of interesting that um, the, the lunar effect, uh, the lunar deity was also the deity of Babylon. And if that's so, uh, it's a short step to think about a synthesis somehow uh, whereby perhaps Islam is preparing the way for the beast by emanating from the Middle East, uh, being embedded in some sort of lunar deity worship uh, and being quite aggressive. Um, I'm not sure... I buy that because I don't. I'm not refuting Dave. I just I'm not well read enough to to say. But here's the point that I get from the people who are experienced with Islam. I I went to seminary with a guy who's the president of a, of a mission to to Islam. I mean, he lived in Egypt. Um, and boy, that you talk about a mission field, it's hard to roll. You talk about trying to be a missionary to Islam. Holy mackerel. Um, he says that it's very clear that Islam has is two characteristics that if you live in an Islamic country, you'll see. One is an extreme authority, uh, a, a total destruction of secularism. He says it's no. It's, every day on the street, people will talk about all of this or all of that. They don't. They don't conceive of society in a secular tone like the Western Western person. And in that, they're more biblical, actually, um, because they, they haven't made that fatal neutrality argument. There's no neutrality in Islam. Um, the other thing, however, with Islam that is odd, he says, is that it's very uh, un... And he doesn't mean this in the sense that the Islamic people are necessarily unloving ethically, because they, they, I mean, wives love their husbands, husbands love their wives. But in the theology of Islam, there is very little by way of an absolute love and compassion. Uh, and 
we, he believes and I believe that that is a result of the fact that not, they don't have a trinity. That their God finally in the last analysis has to create something outside of himself to have an object for his love. And that prior to creation, that was not his essence. His essence wasn't, so to speak, um, active that way. So, um, that carries over, because of the lack of love in the God himself, into the redemptive problem. And so now we have a situation where in Islam, you work, it's, it's a salvation by work scheme. Out, good works outweigh your bad works. Well, if you're going to be saved by works, then what does that do to God's grace? There is no grace if it's for works. Paul tells us this. Well, if there's no grace, then that in turn undercuts the whole attribute of love because grace in Christian theology is an emanation of God's love after the fall and the presence of sin. Grace is love in a sinful world. So there, there's nothing like that in Islam. So this is why when you see the fierceness of, uh, uh, of Islam, the holy war nature, the judgmental part of it, it, ideas have consequences. And bad ideas have bad consequences. And you can't fight the fruit without dealing with the root. And he says that's the problem. He says in his experience, he has never, ever won a Muslim to Christ by arguing with him. What, what, what stimulates the Muslims, makes them question their own faith, is the presence of grace in lives of Christians. Um, they see that and it's, it, it shocks them. It shocks them because it's something unknown in their whole system. And so it's, it becomes a, a weapon, actually, a weapon with them. Um, but anyway, that's the Islam story as far as I can push it right now. Anything else I'd like to talk about? Well, then I guess we'll meet next week and um, keep working through these things. And I think you'll see that history repeats itself. There's only four or five basic ideas. They keep coming up in new form, but same person, different, you know, different coat, different hat, but it's the same person. So, okay. Uh, let's close with a word of prayer for our government, for those in authority. Our Father, we thank you that you are sovereign, that you work all things after the counsel of your will, that there's no uh, autonomous, truly autonomous person on this planet, but that all are ultimately under your sovereign control. And we know that you tell us in the New Testament to pray for those in authority, for wisdom, that the church may lead peaceably in godly lives. And we pray that the decisions that our leaders make uh, will protect us and will allow the church of the Lord Jesus Christ continue to study the Word, to worship in peace, and worship in freedom in this country. And we pray that you would honor your Word and make whatever the situation is something that would work together to bring men to an awareness of who you are, an awareness of your character, and a confrontation with the Gospel. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.